0: We're only human. We all make mistakes. Now, while both of those statements are true, and you and I would quickly agree with them and acknowledge they're true, far too often they're set as a kind of excuse for our own poor choices of bad behavior or, more rarely, for the choice of behavior of others. We invoke those words when we've been less than upright in our conduct and others are aware of that fact. When we feel the need to explain ourselves and yet to find no good reason for what we've done. We realize we simply acted immorally or selfishly, and so the excuse of last resorts is cited as we intone, well, I'm only human, and you know. We all make mistakes. As an excuse, it really doesn't serve, although you and I often uh, accept it as a kind of act of grace and mercy on our part, for we know from the inside, don't we, just how flawed and failing we humans are. As a statement of fact, however, uh, that excuse serves fairly well, with one clarification uh, and one correction. The clarification we need to make is that many of the things that we call sin or mistakes really ought to be labeled as sins. There is a difference between picking up the wrong lunchbox, that's a mistake, and walking off with of one you know is not yours, that's sin. All of us have engaged in both kinds of behavior, mistakes, and sins. The difference is that mistakes can be explained Sin simply must be owned and confessed. The correction involves what it means to be human. Humans were not created as sinners, and even our mistakes likely originate because of sin. Jesus was a man and he never did sin. He's the only one we can say that about, but we can say it. All the rest of humankind will continue to do so we sin, will continue to do so can't help ourselves. We can't really do otherwise. But there is coming a day when God's people will be like Jesus, when we will no longer be able to sin. You see, we don't sin because we're humans. We sin because our nature has been corrupted by the fall. We sin because we are sinners. But with that clarification and that correction, we can say as a statement of fact without making any excuses for ourselves by saying it, we are only human and we all make mistakes. But put another way, I'm a sinner, and so are you. And the same can be said for the very best of all who have ever lived again with the notable exception of Jesus Christ. Yet most of us in this room, now maybe not all, and if you haven't gotten there yet, my heart breaks for you, and I would help you get there if I could. But most of us have put our faith in what Christ has accomplished for us on the cross when he died in our place and paid for our sins. We are forgiven, but we find ourselves still sinning. It is distressing to say the least, yet there we are, we're forgiven. We're human and make mistakes, and we hate that incongruity. But we're not making excuses, we're stating a fact here, and from that fact, we're reminded of what we talked about the last time we were together. The Apostle Paul, who was human and made mistakes, speaking about himself, said, and about that incongruity, not that I have already become perfect, but I pressed in order that I may take hold of that for which I was also taken hold of by Christ Jesus. And put that in simpler terms, Paul knew that he had not yet arrived, that he was still a sinner, but he kept moving forward toward the goal. He kept pursuing the life that Christ called him to. Now, we won't to repeat all that we talked about last time, but just note that if you want to put your faith in Christ, to pursue that life, it means turning your back on your past sins and successes. And we also know in last time that there were several things that could help you in that pursuit or encouragement. Today, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about what life looks like when we are pressing on, when we are pursuing the life Christ called us. And to do that, we're going to turn once again... To, uh, Paul's letter to his friends, the Philippians, chapter 4, where we'll be considering verses 3 and 4 through 9 So I want you to join me there in your Bibles, if you're not already there, and uh, of course uh, Jim will have the information up on the screen on either side of me. Now let me begin, if I could, uh, by telling you there's really a wonderful truth that this passage teaches us, and if you and I do what we talked about last time, and if we press on and pursuing the life that Christ has called us to, even though we're only human and we continue to make mistakes, even though we are still sinners, we'll discover something which makes it all worthwhile. And it's what this passage that we're going to look at today is leading up to, and, and we'll see it when we reach the end today. In the meantime, we'll begin, and we we'll learn from this text that there are five things that you endeavor to put into
1: practice
0: if you are serious about pursuing the life of Christ has called us to. Now, the first one may not sound very serious, but it really is quite important to living an exceptional Christian life. You see, we need to take uh, joy in our relationship with Jesus Christ and. Verse 4 puts it this way. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. You see, we have a relationship with Jesus Christ that is active and alive. It's real. And we know him better than we know anyone else. That is, of course, if you have come to him intentionally to respond to his call to have your sins forgiven. And I want to take a moment now to explain what I mean. Some of you may be here today, and maybe you've been coming for a while now, and you feel afraid of the failures. You may not talk about it, but you know that you made a mess of your life and not only your life, but you have hurt others and deeply. You're despairing or on the verge of it. You feel as though you have no hope and you think there's no help for it. Coming here is a, kind of a last resort. You think, maybe God can help me. And if that's for you, then i have good news for you. There is hope and there is help. And I'm going to tell you about that in just a moment. But before I do, I need to say something to some other people who may be here today who think they're in a different situation. I would say to you that most people, when they meet you, would think you're nice. Or at least that you're okay. And you think of yourself as a pretty good person. Not perfect, no, but but pretty good. Your conscience, which God has given you, lets you know that you missed the mark so that you say to yourself, I'm not a saint, saint, but I'm not a devil either. And if I were to ask you, if you thought you deserved to go to hell, your answer would be, no, I'm not that Bad. I've never done anything bad enough to be sent there. And that's the problem. You have a sinner's view of sin. Your understanding of it is false. Something has to strike you as bad enough to deserve hell. But you're not the judge. And no one really asks you for your opinion about it. And if I were to ask, uh, you, you and I were each to make a list of those sins that we thought were bad enough to send someone to hell. There would be many things on both our lists, but there would be some things on only one list and some things only on the other list, and we would be surprised by each other's list by what was or was not on that list. You see, our opinions are just that, and opinions are. Which don't carry any weight of law. But there is a judge. And he's God. And what he says does now. He's not only the creator, he is the lawgiver. And he has placed a copy of that law on your conscience. He's put it on your heart, which, in spite of our sin, remains fairly intact, so that you have no excuse for your sin. You know that's wrong. And it's standard. is absolute. He means what he says, though our conscience becomes less sensitive to that as the goes on. He's taught us some things that we must do and others we must not do. And not only are there things that we need to avoid doing, you can't even dwell on the thought of doing those things. I'm right there. We all, all of us, are undone. And then, too, the judge expects you to do good. And when you should have and you haven't done it, then you and I uh, both know that describes every human being. Well, the weight of our sin is then compounded, And we haven't even mentioned our <coughs> obligation to God as creator, but to all of our families, is the most serious. The judge. God does not excuse sin. He condemns it. And when we realize that, we should realize that though we might, not, might have thought ourselves as not so bad and other people might think of us as pretty nice people, the things we have done or not done or thought, and how many of those are there can't even begin to count them, those Things damn us. And the place of the damn is hell. And that's the truth of the situation. And you might not like it, but your likes and dislikes, like your opinion, don't change reality. <coughs> and the first thing that most people do when they realize they're standing before God is they try to bore. They think that if they say they're sorry, it'll help. and then they offer to do some good thing or to cease doing something they know they shouldn't be doing. And the judge tells us, and we know it from his word, that whatever we have to offer is not enough. Not because he's unreasonable or vindictive; It's just that nothing we have. Nothing we can offer to do or stop doing can ever undo what we've done. We can never make it right in our own power. And what's more? We cannot even stop doing the things that have damned us. We are in the old sense of the word most miserable. Our sin is crushing us. We keep Added to the burden, and we cannot help ourselves. And those of you who came in here today and thought that you were okay before God, now you know your condition is the same as that the man or woman who came in here in despair and in a last desperate attempt to find <coughs> hope and help. Now, let me talk to both of you those who are despairing and those who should be. Your sin. Which condemns you, which you cannot fit yourself, was paid for by Christ when he died on that cross. He offers you a new life to take the place of the one you ruined or you're in the process of ruining because of your sin. And if you're willing to follow him, he'll forgive you those sins if you ask him. He'll give you that new life and he'll give you the help you need to live it. You'll still struggle. But you'll have hope and you'll know the truth and that truth will set you free. And if that describes you, then I'm going to tell you, don't wait to come to Christ. Not another, no man He will answer your prayer right there where you're sitting. Or come and see me later. Or someone you know who knows Christ and walks within him. He will show you from this book how you can know your sins are forgiven how you can know you have eternal life. So don't wait. Come to Christ while you still can. The rest of us who are here have already come to that place. We have put our trust in Christ. And nothing can separate us from Him. And with that reminder, we should understand why we have something to be happy about, why we ought to rejoice. You know, some guy once said, anyone who's happy doesn't understand the situation. And there's no doubt that that's true sometimes for some people. But there are others of us who really do understand. We know personally and deeply and clearly. And because God's Word tells us that we who know Christ have reason to rejoice no matter what else may be happening in the world. Not that we don't sad sometimes, of course we are. I mean, even Jesus went over Jerusalem and at Lazarus' tomb. But in spite of the sad things in this life, and often in the very midst of that, we come back to the fact that we belong to Christ. Nothing will ever change that. And a day's coming when he will make all things right. And so we rejoice in that relationship. So if you want to press on to live the life that Christ has called you to, you will rejoice in the Lord and be glad in that relationship that you have with him. The next thing the text mentions for those of you who want to live in such Christian life, which by the way, uh, we're all called to, it's not just for a but for all of us children, it's for us to be gracious to all people because God is with us. Verse 5 says this, Let your gentleness be evident to all the Lord is near. Because God has acted in our life, we need to be gracious to all people. Now, the NIV uses the word gentle. The Greek word means something like be fair, equitable, or gracious. And when you're gentle, you're usually fair and, uh, and gracious. And, and uh, when you're fair and gracious, you're usually gentle get some idea of what Paul is saying here? If we picture one child saying to another, come on now, be fair. I gave you a bit of my candy. Let me have a taste of the rice cream. One is invoking the child's version of the golden rule. In essence saying, I can treat you nice Paul, Treat me nice. Now we might smile at the child's simple reason, but we all understand. We do. We understand what he or she is getting at. Still, Paul is saying something a little bit different. He's not telling you and I to treat other people nicely or fairly because they have been nice to us. He's telling us to be gracious to all other people because Christ has been good to us. Take some of that good which God has given you and share it with others. Christ is there. He's active in our life. He's gracious to us. And even as he had this reason to chastise us, it's always for our good. Because he's good to us, because he's near us, he never leaves us, he never forsakes us, because he loves us. So be good to everyone you meet. That too. Together <coughs> is rejoicing in your relationship with Christ, is how you press. Now, can I make a confession to all of you? If you ever want to see me when I'm not very (coughs) happy, or when I'm, well, just a grumpy old man, catch me when I'm really worried about something. Anxiety will rob me of my joy. It makes it hard to remember even the good things that Christ has done for me. And it makes it a whole lot Harder for me to be nice to others. You know, at times like that, it's hard for me to be gracious to to (coughs) love, much less a stranger than I meet on the street. But I guess, truth be told, I just confessed your problem too, didn't I? So if we want to press on, we'll have to deal with that anxiety. And I know you're not surprised to find that Paul has something to say about that too in verse 6 when he writes these words, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. See, if you want to deal with your anxiety, this is how you do with it, with whatever prayer you may have, in every situation, for whatever it is that makes you anxious, by prayer and petition, which all means a genuine, heartfelt prayer, go to God and talk with him about it, and present your requests, you know, a lot of times we do that on our own without even being told. When something's bothering us, uh, the most natural thing in the world to do is to talk about it and even to pray about it. What doesn't come quite so easily, however, is the addition of those words with thanksgiving. The anxiety we have fills our mind and tends to rule our hearts. But God tells us to, to make a little room in all of that and give thanks to him. He says in the midst of all of those things, remember the things you have to be thankful for. And if you did that, go to him in genuine heartfelt prayer. Add some thanksgiving to it Even just a list of the good things you have. Remember that every good and perfect gift you've ever had has come from God. And then talk about what's bothering you. You'll discover this kind of change coming over you. You'll feel this anxiety uh, just giving away to something calm, <laughs> reassuring. Something that's in a sense outside of yourself, but is real and solid. which takes hold of you. <clears throat> And verse 7 puts it like this: that the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. When we're feeling anxious, if we go to God in genuine, heartfelt prayer, remembering to give thanks to God, God gives us his peace. He promises his peace. We're not promised of everything we ask for, or that our problem, whatever it is, should be fixed, no matter how earnestly we pray for it, no matter how often we pray matter how much we've asked for it. Even if such an answer would indeed alleviate all our anxiety. What we are promised is God's peace. The peace that is promised us by Jesus. It comes only for God. But the world cannot give you that peace. It is a peace which transcends all understanding, which surpasses all comprehension. There really is no emotional or psychological explanation for it. It comes even in the midst of the worst turmoil we can know. It comes even when no is the answer to our most heart-filled prayers. It guards both our hearts, our emotional makeup, the things we feel, even if our hearts are breaking. It guards our minds the things we may think and the questions we may have. It guards them, means that it guards them in their attacks from wherever they might come from. The world which is always telling us how foolish we are to believe in God. The devil who tells us that God really isn't so good after all. And our flesh, our own sinful nature, which prefers itself to anyone or anything else, raising its own questions and mind, God have its own pain We are guarded by God's peace as we're in Christ Jesus. As believers, for God's peace comes only to this children. And as we remember who it is, to whom we belong. I to tell you, this is one of my favorite verses. I have memorized it. When I find myself apprehensive, I quote this passage myself. And I pray, and I give thanks. I talk to God about what's going on in my heart, my mind. And his peace comes. And there have been times when just minutes after I stopped praying, the angst is back, and so I begin again. I pray, I thank God, I cry to God, and soon the peace comes again. I do that until I have the victory. For God has promised his peace, a peace in our own selves we have no right to, which we cannot demand, but which he has promised, and he alone. Will give, which is beyond our ability to understand, but not, thank God, not beyond our ability to experience. And so, when we're anxious, this is what we do we rejoice, we're gracious to others because God is with us. That's how we press on. And to all to fill our minds with good things. So in verse 8, we read, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Now this is not Paul's last word that he has to say on this matter, or in this letter. Rather, finally, the Greek should have been translated in addition to, That is, in addition to everything else I've said to you so far, Paul goes on to say, if we want to press on, we need to fill our minds with good things. Now, sometimes, Ann and I will be sitting at home or driving in the car and we're quiet and we're not really talking, and I'll look over to her and say, What are you thinking about? And often she replies, Nothing really. Now I have tried. And I really tried I have to tell you over the years to explain to her she should never admit that. And I tried to be a good example to her in that. Now she doesn't ask me that question anymore. Long well, ago, she stopped asking me what I was thinking about. But in the day when she did ask it, even if my mind was in idle, in order to be a good example to her, I would say something like, "I'm contemplating." the nature of our dimensional universe and the possibility of multiple dimensions which may or may not exist between our corporal sensitivities. <laughs> <laughs> and if you can see why she doesn't ask me. Right? <laughs> 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 truth is, our minds are never really neutral. They will shift into one year or another, and <laughs> as often as not, because we're sinners, we find. Ourselves thinking things we should think. It's not enough to say, don't think about bad things. We have to fill the void. We need to think about good things. C.S. Lewis and his brother, I used to play a game when we were children, and they would imagine they could have anything they wished for if they didn't think of the white bear. And you can imagine how often they got what they wanted That air kept sneaking back into their minds, no matter how hard they tried not to think about it. Same thing is true for us. Instead of trying not to think about bad things, let's fill our mind with good things. Now, Paul would give us an exhaustive list here, except in the sense that he used to kind of catch up when he said anything is excellent crazy. So certainly thinking about God's grace and His work in our lives and in the lives of other people would fit this command, would certainly be the first order, remembering what Christ did for us on the cross. But I think there's a lot of things we can think about, even things which aren't specifically spiritual, things which God and His grace has given to us, such as remembering the first times we met our spouse, or the good times we had growing up, or or the funny things the children said when they moved. Right, Martin uh, could remember back in the day when the Chicago Bears actually played football.
1: (laughs) 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 Filling our mind
0: with good things. Rejoicing in our relationship with Christ. Being gracious to others because God is with us. And dealing with anxiety and bringing to God, that's how we present. And then finally, and we're not spending much time here, Paul tells us, if we're to press on then we need to obey God's truth. He put it this way at the beginning the verse 9. Whatever you have learned, received, or heard from me, or seen in me, put it into practice. Pressing on means we ought to obey God's truth. Now this is more uh, than a call, I'll simply call, follow Paul's example. That's part of it, specific, specifically that phrase, whatever you've seen in me.' But the instruction is brought Whatever is a kind of all-encompassing term. Paul addresses his friends and he tells them, well, form is imperative, so he commands them to put into practice, which is really a pretty good translation, but you could say it this is way, to do these things and keep doing them. But put into practice whatever they have learned, received, or heard, all of the things which Paul spoke to whether personally or in a letter or even by the way. And anyway, that's what follows the same In other words, put into practice gospel. You now, Jesus has a way of saying the same thing. And he said, Why do you call me Lord, but not do what I tell you to do? As Christians, we're followers of Christ. And so we ought to do the things he tells us. But we don't always do it. Do We're only human. Which means we're still sinners. And we have them. God filling our minds with good things and practicing God's truth, we will become aware of something. We'll become aware of something as a matter of our experience which we have no reason to, to expect or any right to demand. And yet the Bible confirms it's true. God himself will be walking with us as we make our way through this life. And verse 9, and the God of peace be with you. God himself will walk through with us as we make our way through this way. You know, Paul's last statement here uh, indicates if we endeavor to live out our faith, that God of peace will be with us. Paul's not saying God will give us peace. That's not what he's saying here. He's already told us that. Paul is saying this God the only one who can give peace will be with us. And as we walk through this if we endeavor to live out on faith, to find God to be our constant companion. And I don't know about you, but I find that a great encouragement. i make mistakes. I'm not a, mistake. a human. Even though I come to Christ, I continue to fail. But God is with me as I press on even is with me. He is with me when I do what I should. And he is with me even in my sins. He is faithful God, be the glory. All glory be to God. Would you pray? Yes. Father, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for the truth in your word. I pray, Father, that this truth will find its way in world.